Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The murders at Starved Rock explore this 60-year-old murder mystery. The convicted killer, Chester Weger, maintains his innocence after 60 years in prison and seeks exoneration. Haunted by the murders in his hometown, David Reculia has spent the last 15 years delving into the case files, convinced that the whole truth has yet to be uncovered. As a child growing up in LaSalle, David lived in fear of Uyghur, who was characterized as the local boogeyman. David's father, Anthony Reculia, was the district attorney who prosecuted Chester Uyghur. The film is called the Murders at Starved Rock, and we're joined today by the director of this HBO series, and that would be Jody McVeigh-Schultz. Jody, welcome to Film School Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. This is a remarkable story, and not the least of which, the sort of one uh, element in the story is that this happened 60 years ago, and yeah. it still continues to kind of hold sway over this small town. Tell us a little bit about how you even heard about this? What uh, what prompted your involvement in this project? So uh, I worked on a show called McMillions, uh, which was also on HBO uh, with a company called Unrealistic Ideas. And the guy who kind of runs the show over there, Archie Gibbs, came to me and said, we have this incredible story, really layered, really complex. And we also have a ton of footage from this guy named David Reculia who we've sort of partnered with to uh, get access to his footage. The story was just incredible. And it also, you know, David had done a ton of documentary work and interviews in the early 2000s and essentially had an unfinished film with hundreds of hours of interviews. And he had a very personal connection to the case because he was the son of the original prosecutor that put Chester Weger in prison. You know, I dove right in. I think a lot of documentarians are like this, you know, once you get hooked on something, you're going fully down the rabbit hole. And it was like that immediately. And, you know, the timing was such that we were just entering, this was spring of 2020, we were entering the pandemic. Documentary project that had a ton of archival. Yeah. And already shot footage. Um, obviously, we knew we needed to shoot more, but it had this element to it where you could clearly see um, the potential there already. And that was so that was super you know, timely, given the circumstances. And so, yeah, I, I started researching. I talked to a bunch of people involved. And then, yeah, we went and shot our first our sort of principal photography in uh, December of 2020. Well, I imagine with your background as an editor, looking at this lump of clay that uh, David had helped put together along with the background information, I'm sure you started to feel like you could chip away and get to the essence of the story before you even shot, started shooting principal stuff, right? I mean, that would be a huge, I would think, huge advantage. We, we did. And what's interesting is obviously you try to sort of formulate the broad strokes of the story in, in sort of in preparation for making this. But what's interesting is Every time you thought you knew something, you found out, oh, I don't know the full story. And that just happened over and over again 
yeah. in this, um, especially because some of the stories that sort of surround this case have been sort of marinating in this town for 60 years, like you said. And so it really is difficult to pick out what's true from what's mythology, really on all sides, right? Right. right. I think of any documentary series that I've seen, this one has one of the most interesting trajectories. There's almost always in serial, when you see a serial documentary film, you know there are going to be ups and downs. You know, you know there are going to be some dead ends, false starts, things you think are going to be happening that don't. But this one has one of the more unusual trajectories of any documentary series that I've seen. So, and I'm not going to say much more than I want people to watch this. I'm not going to get into too many of the the reasons why I'm saying that. But uh, I guess, as you said, I mean, starting with David Rakulia, yeah. I think he is the person. He's our guide. We mm-hmm. talk. You you spend a lot of time talking to him about it. And you're right. This, the town is its own character in this film and the town folk, and in some ways, a microcosm of the world that we now live in, in terms of information. What is real and what's not real? What, how do you f- separate fact from fiction? And I thought you did a wonderful job of just all of that. You sprinkle in enough here and there, and then as this thing goes on, you go, th- these things start to become really important. Um, I know this was a conscious part on your uh, yeah. decision on your part, but I, I just have to compliment you on you. So was it difficult in terms of, cause you just said earlier, you had yeah. to really, it really evolved, I guess. Yeah, it evolved. And you know what, a, a real key moment in the evolution of sort of deciding how to structure, which again, like we're not going to give it away, but it's a very conscious choice in terms of when to reveal what information. And uh, I, I think, that started to click in my head um, when I was interviewing David because I was able to see it really sort of in the moment from his eyes. And he went on a legitimate roller coaster ride with this. And we wanted the audience to feel that, to really feel the twists and turns that he went through. And you're right, like sometimes you'll have a series where you know, there are twists and turns, but you kind of know that the, the twists and turns are coming. And we hope that that, that is not the case with this. That, that's It's tricky to structure something with real, you know, kind of 180 degree turns. Um, so that was, you know, again, I have a background in editing and that was a big part of this is how do we make yeah. that work? And then also, like I was, I'm really glad you mentioned this idea of built narrative, sort of questioning what you've heard as you know accepted fact um sort of trying to figure out what is actually mythology we were very just taken by how obsessed the town had become with this story and found it fascinating and it really was that there was somebody who'd written a book on this and he had based his sort of take on the prosecution's case and so that was kind of like in some ways the accepted story And then there was this whole other side of sort of ragtag uh, DIY investigators who had created an entire new sort of accepted underground narrative on Facebook (laughs) of all places. And then obviously um, from there, it just got even more complicated and you kind of had to decide, okay, where, what should I trust? Uh, How did this sort of become accepted, the accepted narratives and, and, and uh, yeah, but parse the truth from there. 
there, I want to talk more about the specifics of the case. We obviously have to do that, Chester Wager and yeah. what happened and the, these three <clears throat> women who were murdered. But I want to talk about the internal dynamic within the story of David and Anthony, his father. Yeah. And the way it's presented and was really respectful and uh, adult. There, there's some give and take. I thought that the interaction between him and his father was so illuminating, but also uh, refreshing in the in the in the way they were able to have those conversations. Yeah, I mean, at the center of this is multiple uh, father son relationships. In fact, sort of throughout different families. Um, but the center is David's relationship with his father, who was the, the prosecutor of Chester Weger. And specifically an interview he did with his father where he appeared on camera and they kind of had this loose back and forth. And it is interesting because, um, you know, you don't want to sort of oversimplify something like this. I think David grew up, his mother passed uh, when he was a young child. And his father raised him as a single father and was his hero, right? And so he grew up knowing Chester Weger as the boogeyman from that perspective. And that his father was the hero who had put the boogeyman in prison. When he got older, you know, he had sort of heard a lot of these sort of rumors. Oh, your dad put an innocent man in prison. And then the case was reopened, essentially, when Chester applied for clemency from the governor. and David was sort of intrigued and also angry that somebody's accusing his hero, his father, of lying, but also really wanted to get to the bottom of it. He didn't want to just say, I don't believe you, this is BS, like really wanted to get answers for himself. And so he went down this road of hearing the people who investigated, prosecuted this, but then also the other side of it. As a result, had some, what I would call tense moments with his father. But what's interesting about it is not tense in the like, they're screaming at each other. They clearly love each other. Right. But there is this very intense difference in worldview that I think David explains really well. And he says, you know, my father thought of the law as religion. So it's like, if it went all the way to the Supreme Court and one of the appeals in this went to the state Supreme Court, it, it couldn't be wrong, right? The law doesn't get things wrong in his father's point of view. And in David's point of view, it's like, no, people are wrong all the time. And that's just an interesting, and they, they kind of push and pull and, and it gets a little testy at times. But I think in the end, there there's also a mutual respect there, which is interesting to see. You kind of don't expect to have all those layers to it. And it made for a really complex, interesting central spine, I would say, to the, the piece. Absolutely. Two other things about this relationship. One is that David's project could have easily completely proven without would be on a shadow of a doubt that the things that his father was a part of in, in, in the uh, investigation and the prosecution. That was a possibility. The other part of it is he, Anthony, his father, Anthony, acknowledged the issues surrounding the case, the confessions. The There was a lot of things he said he knew at the time were probably BS, but nonetheless felt strongly enough that they had the right person. So that's what I love the fact that, you know, it would be easy to see a father saying, what the hell are you doing in a way that would have just been very much it's him or me, it's him or the highway kind of 
kind of approach. And they didn't. They had this really, what I consider to be a very respectful and also uh, intellectually honest uh, uh, discussion. And I think Tony Reculia was honest in a way that perhaps he might not have been willing to be so open, essentially, with somebody who wasn't yeah. his son. Um, and that's sort of the beauty of that interaction. Um, and I don't want to give too much away, obviously, but part of the reason that when people are like, so what's your take on this? You know, I think if you watch the full series, you kind of will understand that. But one of the first things I say is like, I don't think that the official story is the whole truth. And part of the reason is because I am listening to the words of the, the prosecutor himself, which yeah. is just, that was fascinating to hear. Yeah. We're talking with the director of this wonderful documentary film series on little be on HBO starting on uh, Tuesday, December 14th, the murder at Starved Rock, and that would be Jody McVeigh Schultz. And we're going to run out of time before we actually have much uh, to talk about in terms of the uh, the actual uh, murders of these three women uh, who and the man arrested and put on uh, life sentence for it was Chester Weger. Uh, let's describe as much as, as you want to about the actual event, the murder of th- these three women. It was a triple murder that happened in 1960, where the bodies were actually found in a a state park, Starved Rock State Park. Uh, The women had been at the lodge in the state park, and it was this huge, huge case, a ton of publicity, um, a ton of investigative activity, and it totally overwhelmed this small town. It's It's a sort of consortium of a few towns that uh, is called LaSalle, Peru, uh, Illinois. Yeah, they couldn't uh, solve the case for eight months. And there were all these leads, in some ways, the the press coverage of it, there was a big reward. It led to a bunch of confusing factors. And then finally, this Manchester Uyghur, who was a local, a dishwasher at the lodge where the women had been staying, was arrested and charged with the crime um, eight months later after local investigators took over the case. And so that becomes a big part of it as you steam what to believe in this uh, or, or to have to decide what to believe in this. And Chester Weir, in a very public way, confessed to this. And then two days later, when he was given a lawyer, recanted his confession. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I was interested in is how, you know, possible false confessions work. I'd, I'd done work on um, other shows, a show called Exhibit A, which is actually about forensic uh, science. But the director there, Kelly Loudenberg, made the confession tapes for Netflix. And so I'd worked with her and I kind of knew a lot about false confessions. And I saw some of the red flags. But obviously, the more you look into it, the more sort of complicated something can get. So. Amen to all of that, because in on some level, almost everything could be true in this story. I don't want to give anything away here. So, yeah. but literally, the more you hear, the more often you think, or more, yeah, you're more prone to say, yeah, there's that a lot, almost everything here could actually be true. Yeah. Um, so, well, my congratulations to you on this. Thank you. Yeah. And again, I, I just want to, for people who are going to be watching the murders at Starved Rock, uh, that your background as a filmmaker, again, you were part of the team that uh, was responsible for McMillions, one of the really terrific documentary series uh, that I've seen in a while. And also 
one of my favorites, <laughs> giving too much away here, Comedy Central's Drunk History, which I just absolutely loved. And I Thank wish, you. is it ever coming back? Or are we done with it? Is that completely gone? You know, <laughs> I think it might be done, although you never know. Derek Waters uh, and Jeremy Connor are the creators of that and did it for a long time. And Derek, I feel like, because he would drink along with people, put his liver through a lot. So yes, yes, him. for people who don't know, yes. yes. The whole premise was people got drunk on camera and yeah. one of the people he had enlisted to tell a very important historic story yes. that they thought they knew something about. That's, I, that would that be? <laughs> yes, yes. And then the reenactments on screen with very well-known performers reenacting the dialogue verbatim. It is hilarious. I mean, I can I say it? So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, a lot of absolutely. fun to work on. Okay. Well, well, thank you so very, very much for your time, Jody uh, McVeigh Schultz. And again, the film is called, the series is called The Murders at Starved Rock, HBO, Tuesday night, the first two episodes, final episode on Wednesday, December 15th. Hang close to your TV or, or HBO Max or something. So uh, Jody, thank you so very much for spending some time with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.